What's happening in the world right now? Coming up on NTD News. First, we bring you our top stories. A sticky situation during testimony on cross-sex procedures. Congressman Dan Crenshaw demanded answers from an Ivy League witness on which studies provide evidence of the benefits of such procedures. Homicide and suicide rates among America's youth are on the rise. We search for hope after these disturbing findings were revealed by the CDC. Marine veteran Daniel Penny speaks out in the wake of his indictment. He wants to set the record straight on what happened on the day that ended in the death of Jordan Neely. The head of the UN calling on the world to stop using fossil fuels by 2040. He says rich countries should do so faster than developing countries to make it more equitable. The younger generation is turning to influencers and celebrities more than news outlets for information. We hear from an expert why that is and get some useful advice on the best way to stay informed. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news centers on a heated exchange on Capitol Hill this week. The topic was cross-sex procedures for minors. Congressman Dan Crenshaw challenged a Democrat witness to provide evidence on the benefits of such surgeries and medications. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the testimony. Representative Dan Crenshaw is the sponsor of a bill that would remove funding from children's hospitals if they provide cross-sex procedures for minors. Not too long ago, I think we all agreed that performing double mastectomies on a 12-year-old girl was wrong. The congressman says the public is clear on the issue. He cited a May Washington Post poll that showed that 68% of Americans opposed using puberty blockers on children. Crenshaw says the number would have been much higher were the question to include surgical interventions. Now, maybe I'm an optimist, but I do believe that science and evidence will win out in the end. In the future, we will look back at these gender-affirming therapies as we now look at lobotomies and electroshock therapies. Crenshaw questioned Yale School of Medicine assistant professor Meredith McNamara during the hearing. The congressman said systematic reviews are the gold standard of evidence to understand whether something is working or not, whether such treatments are improving kids' underlying mental condition. He pointed out that the British Journal of Medicine looked at 61 systematic reviews with the conclusion that, quote, there is great uncertainty about the effects of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgeries in young people. Crenshaw says the Journal of the Endocrine Society and the American Academy of Pediatrics had the same conclusion. According to Crenshaw, they all cite the lack of evidence. Tell me a journal that has done systematic reviews that cites different evidence, that cites strong evidence for benefits of these therapies. The standards of care were developed based on extensive... You're not telling me any journal. You're not telling me any study. Don't That's say standards of I'd... care. Yeah. So... Um, Tell me one. The standards of care. That's the, the standards of care. That's, yes, that's, standards that's of not care. a journal. That's not a study. That's not an organization. That's not an institution. You're just saying words. Name one study. McNamara didn't offer a single study prior to Crenshaw's time running out. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Homicides and suicides among young Americans reached their highest levels in decades during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's according to a new CDC study. The report analyzed the homicide and suicide death rates among those aged 10 to 24 from 2001 to 2021. One key finding was that the homicide rate for the overall age group spiked by 37 percent from 2019 to 2020. Meanwhile, the suicide data showed a general upward trend after 2007. 
The suicide rate among those aged 10 to 24 increased by 62% from about seven deaths per 100,000 to 11. That's from 2007 to 2021. While suicide and homicide rates have gone up, academic scores for kids have gone down. Average math and reading scores among 4th and 8th graders saw their largest ever decline between 2019 and 2022. And it is sad that America's youth are lost to homicide and suicide at a higher rate. We hear a perspective on a path forward to remedy this. Joining me now is Jeffrey Tucker, Epic Times senior columnist, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, and author of Liberty or Lockdown. Jeffrey, it's great having you on today. Thank you so much. Thank you. The CDC study shows that homicide rates among all the age groups rose most year over year in 2020. You recently wrote the article, The Desperate Need to Restore the Community. Do you have any suggestions that can hopefully reverse this trend? Well, a lot of my suggestions are backwards looking. We never should have locked down. I mean, that was was a disaster and imposed so-called social distancing, which is another way of saying wrecking the social order. You know, we closed uh, people's churches, their, their community groups, we forbid live performances, uh, the place where you hang out for to, to get a beer with your friends and listen to the jazz band, uh, that all went away. And I, my argument is that, that this long period of time in which we were uh, forcibly separated and even faced things like travel restrictions, essentially uh, truncated the human personality and demoralized people, and people turned to substance abuse, and um, you know the isolation, and essentially uh, all so all forms of, of of dysphoria, and and we're seeing the consequences right now. What we're seeing right now is the unfolding of of what happened in the past. So my suggestion is is a kind of restorative suggestion. We desperately need to be with each other. Um, in whatever way we can. This is going to go on for years. And I, I've noticed this. You know, I run for Brownstone Institute, a separate club. And I introduced the separate club the other night because everybody gathered and people were talking loudly and running all over the room and smiling and happy and making jokes and meeting each other and slapping each other back. And I got up the microphone and I said, Hey, everybody, why are you so happy? Civilization is collapsing. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they all started laughing. But we all know the truth. We're just, we're desperate to be together, you know, after after this long period of chaos and collapse. And that that is a path towards, towards healing. Um, young need to be with old. The old needs to be with each other. We need to restore our families. And we're going to have to take concerted efforts in, in, in this way. Get out in the community. We all became habituated to what is a very dangerous kind of kind of social social isolation you know sitting in our apartments uh, in our in our dorm rooms whatever staring at screens is not the best path to restoring the human personality or developing it we've got to we've got to stop this and Jeffrey, you do make a good point that person-to-person -person interaction is very important. I do want to point out something interesting here from the Brookings Institute. It shows that connection between violence and place is something that they were making a mention of. It's, it cites that in cities, violence is often concentrated in disinvested neighborhoods, and it can even be localized to individual streets. And they think that there's growing evidence that rehabilitating vacant lots and adding more community organizations can help bring down this type of crime. You wrote the book, The Market Loves You. Is there any way that markets in the traditional sense can help in this area? The thesis of the book is that markets provide a means by which we're able to be valued as individuals. So C.S. Lewis distinguishes four levels of love. It's not just one love. There are many loves. One of those is just friendship and, and casual association. Just um, 
all of us making efforts to affirm the dignity of others in exchange for which we get affirmed ourselves. We unleash not love, but but hatred and pathology and a destruction of the human personality in ways in which we I, we can't even conceive of. I mean, it's, it's all around us right now. So yes, restoration is going to take a very, very long time, probably a generation, but it's going to come through ever more human association and connection and uh, a decentralization and a deregulation of market forces to allow individuals to exercise their volition, to enable small businesses to thrive again, to encourage entrepreneurship and, and dreaming and service of others through market enterprise and exchange. So I believe this very strongly, and I think it's the way forward. And I think many people would agree with you that affirmation, dignity, and friendship are all key factors in improving mental health. Jeffrey Tucker, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, it is great having your analysis. Well, thank you so much for letting me talk. A grand jury has indicted Marine veteran Daniel Penny in the death of Jordan Neely, a homeless man. Penny put the New York City subway rider in a fatal chokehold. And today's Daniel Monahan has Penny's comments on what happened. When Penny finished a college class at around 2.15 on the fatal day, he had no idea what awaited him. He got on an uptown F train and let the tunes in his headphones carry him away. At 2nd Avenue, a man stumbled on, ripped off his jacket, and threw it at passengers. The man's yelling got Penny's attention, and he removed his headphones. And the three main threats that he repeated over and over was, I'm going to kill you, I'm prepared to go to jail for life, and I'm willing to die. At six foot two, Penny's definitely not small in stature, but he says Neely was bigger and he was afraid. But Penny says the Marines taught him the core value of courage and that courage is not the absence of fear, but how you handle that fear. And, you know, I was scared for myself, but I looked around, I saw women and children. He was yelling in their faces, saying, saying these threats. I couldn't just sit still. Penny says any attempt to make what happened about race is absolutely ridiculous. I didn't see a black man threatening passengers. I saw a man threatening passengers. A lot of those passengers, as Penny points out, were also people of different races. Neely's death prompted protests, setting off a debate about vigilantism and public safety in New York City. Neely had a long rap sheet and had recently pled guilty to punching a 67-year-old woman in her face. The attack broke her nose and fractured her orbital bone. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The head of the United Nations is strongly advocating against fossil fuel companies. He's accusing them of betraying future generations. Here are the clips. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres on Thursday strongly advocated for getting rid of fossil fuels. He's accusing fossil fuel companies of betraying future generations and undermining efforts to phase out their products. I see a lack of ambition, a lack of trust, a lack of support, a lack of cooperation, and an abundance of problems around clarity and credibility. The climate agenda is being undermined. At a time when we should be accelerating action, there is backtracking. Guterres said fossil fuels are incompatible with human survival. Current policies are taking the world to a 2.8 degree temperature rise by the end of the century. That spells catastrophe, yet the collective response remains pitiful. Guterres wants the industry to put forward a credible plan for shifting to modern ways of energy production, which he calls clean energy. 
He also urged rich countries to commit to phasing out coal by 2030 and other countries to follow suit a decade later. Some say coal is the most polluting fossil fuel. I have proposed the Climate Solidarity Pact in which all big emitters would make extra efforts to cut emissions and wealthier countries supporting emerging economies to do so. Guterres also dismissed ideas that fossil fuel companies can keep up production if they find a way to capture carbon emissions. This comes ahead of the UN's 28th Climate Change Conference, which is set to take place in Dubai later this year. The UN this week confirmed reports that it will require attendees to disclose their affiliation beforehand. That's to make sure representatives of fossil fuel companies can't have any impact at the conference. Just ahead, student loan payments will resume in the fall. Can students afford it? It seems like many will struggle. A new report shows executives working for Planned Parenthood are among the top 2% earners in the U.S., with one making over $600,000. We'll have those details for you in just a moment. Welcome back. If you're watching this, you, of course, get your news from news organizations. However, a new report says young Americans are now turning to influencers more than mainstream news sources to stay informed. The findings were revealed by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. We hear more about the role social media plays in sourcing information and some advice for news consumers from an expert. Please welcome Kaylee Pear, social media expert and strategist and CEO of Paired Up. So great to have you with us, Kaylee. Uh, so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Kaylee, in your view, what are the pros and cons of celebrities and influencers being the primary source for news among this generation? Well, of course, you know, there are going to be both pros and cons, kind of like anything as, you know, every generation continues to grow and uh, we tap into new things. So I would say, you know, the pros of, you know, being, I think, you know, I come from a news background, so I used to work on te local television stations all over the country before I started uh, my company. And with news, everybody listens to a person, right? They trust a person, whether you're a news outlet, whether you're an influencer. So it's really the same thing, except for journalists went to school for a very, very long time. They know all the laws, they know all the copyright, they know all of that, those details. So I think the, the, the pros, though, is that with social media influencers, they're still people. So they're, the reason that the younger generations may be connecting with them is because they see them as real people and are viewing it the same way. And I think that's good because then you can figure out for yourself what it is that you're going to take away from that. But at the same time, I think the con is what's real, what's not real. And there's still a really serious fine line when it comes to uh, celebrities or social media and really are, do they have the facts, right? It's all done to facts. And Kaylee, you make a really good point that it does come down to trust and relatability is obviously very central to this. Now there is the concern that there is this one-sided phenomenon happening in our news media and also at the same time though these, these influencers may not have the journalistic standards that some of these news media may have. So what advice do you have for news consumers whether they get their information from influencers and celebrities or from these broadcast networks or print publications? I would say just keep an open mind and don't just believe one thing. So when you're talking about social media influencers, they don't they don't have all the details. They don't have all the tools that a news outlet would have, right? 
But at the same time, we're so used to getting everything at our whenever we want it. And I think that's the reason that going to Snapchat or Twitter or Facebook or TikTok for news is because it's right there right now. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to wait till the five o'clock news. You don't have to wait till the six o'clock or 10 o'clock. And so just get all sides. So if you're going to if you're going to go after a story, you know, I know the, the Gabby Petito story um, several months ago. That was huge with social media influencers do, digging and getting all the info so they didn't have to wait for the press conference at whatever time it was scheduled. But you, you can do that, but then make sure you watch that press conference and make sure you go to those news outlets and you also get that side of the story as well. I think it's really important. Yes, Kaylee, having both sides of the story is very important. And of, of course, reading past the headlines and understanding more of this context can paint a better picture. Now, Gallup had a study in 2022 which said that only 34% of American respondents had any real trust in mass media. So what do you make of this? I think that mass media needs to you know, to look at that and seriously kind of guide how they move forward because they could be that they are the social media influencers as well as long as they're doing it and they're participating and evolving with where our young generation is going with social media. I was always very um, heavily involved in social media with the local television stations I worked at and pushing to whether it's weather coverage, whether it's breaking news, to make sure that we're doing it in a way that maybe it's an Insta story news program or something to make sure that we're tapping into those younger generations. I think that's what the mass media really needs to take away is how are you going to evolve with this? Kaylee Pear, CEO of Paired Up, I really do appreciate your insight on this. Thanks for having me. JP Morgan Chase claims that convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein helped the former U.S. Virgin Islands First Lady draft language for a sex offender law. The Virgin Islands is suing J.P. Morgan for allegedly enabling Epstein to set up a sex trafficking operation there. But the bank now attempts to turn the tables on the Caribbean Islands government by releasing emails between Epstein and a former first lady. According to J.P. Morgan, Cecile DeYoung asked Epstein if he approved of specific changes to the sex offender monitoring laws. The alleged exchange took place in 2011, three years after Epstein pleaded guilty to soliciting an underage prostitute in Florida. A man convicted of funding terrorists has said he's be glad to support the same terrorists again. He was released under the First Step Act after serving only 23 years of a 30-year sentence. Authorities convicted the Lebanese man in 2002 for providing material support to Hezbollah, a terrorist group based in Lebanon. Mohammed Yusuf Mohammed illegally immigrated to the U.S. in 1992. Originally sentenced to 155 years in prison, his punishment was later vacated by the Supreme Court. He was sentenced again to 30 years in 2011. The First Step Act is a bipartisan criminal justice bill passed in 2018. It is aimed at reforming federal prisons and sentencing laws. The goal is to reduce the federal inmate population, maintain public safety, and reduce the number of repeat offenders. Attorneys for an Indiana man accused of killing two girls say he was mistreated in prison. His lawyers are now requesting relocation to a different facility. Richard Allen was arrested last October for killing two teen girls in 2017. The victims' bodies were found outside their hometown of Delphi, Indiana. According to local media outlet WRTV, prosecutors say Allen confessed to the double murder on multiple occasions, but his attorneys claim his statements have no credibility, citing his mental state. 
Allen's been in the Indiana Department of Correction facility since November 2022. His attorneys contend that as a pretrial defendant, his detention with convicted inmates has affected his physical and emotional well-being. Yet according to law enforcement officers and the warden of the correctional facility, his treatment was no different than other inmates. Allen's trial is set for January 2024. A chilling mystery is partially solved. 45 years later, human remains found inside a garment bag in Nevada have been identified with DNA testing. The remains were heavily decayed when spotted buried in a shallow grave in 1978. Police say a DNA sample from a niece helped link the body to Ohio woman Florence Charleston. Police say she moved to Portland, Oregon shortly before her death. Despite progress in the case, it's still unknown how the woman died or why she ended up in a makeshift grave hundreds of miles away in northern Nevada. The investigation into her killing is ongoing. Nathan Carmen has died while awaiting trial for his mother's death. Prosecutors say he committed the murder to inherit millions of dollars. The cause of Carmen's death is still unclear. The Vermont man was charged with killing his own mother in 2016. That was during a fishing trip off the New England coast. He was found floating alone on an inflatable raft eight days later. Prosecutors say Carmen had planned to slay his mother and report that she died in a sinking boat. They allege he altered the boat to make it more likely to sink. Carmen pleaded not guilty last year to fraud and first-degree murder. His trial was set for October. People with student loan debt will soon feel the burden once again as payments resume in the fall. NCD Business's Don Ma speaks to a risk consultant on what the impact will be. And here to talk to me is NTD contributor Derek Giorgino and risk consultant in the greater LA area. So I wanted to talk to you about student loan payments today. Uh, seems like it's going to resume in a few months. Uh, it's been paused for three years now. How much of a burden do you think this uh, resumption will put on students? I think it's going to put a huge <laughs> burden on students who carry these federal student loans, Don. Uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau actually recently came out with a report that says one in five student loan borrowers, those that hold federal student loans, um, have risk factors or had risk factors going into that three-year reprieve um, for the pause on payments that could result in them having a harder time paying off their loans coming out of this reprieve. I believe it's September where around 40 million Americans can expect a federal student loan payment to come due. Um, and then one in 13 of those holders, it's estimated by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, have been behind on other payment obligations for other debt that are not even related to uh, student loans. So as much as the three-year reprieve might have helped students in the moment, um, they're coming out of this reprieve, some of them in even worse shape than they were going into it. Yeah, I mean, you made a point here about financial responsibility. Do you think, do you think that's the main reason why students are, or people who have loans are in this situation? Yeah, well, you look, and you can forgive debt, you can forgive or delay debt payments all you want, um, but Don, it, it creates a really rotten incentive system in our economy, and it conditions the society uh, to think that it can live a lifestyle that it simply cannot afford. Uh, and as we're seeing, these loan reprieves or delays 
Uh, it will not stop people from continuing irresponsible personal finance habits, and it will not stop people from finding other ways to take on debt. And in fact, the Bureau also estimates, and this is based on a sample-based study, so not holistic, but they do estimate that over half of the holders of this federal student loan debt actually increased uh, other personal debt, whether that be credit cards, car loan payments. Um, and some folks, they take out personal loans to pay off other loans. And so it's almost like a pyramid scheme of personal finance habits, you know, debt, um, leads to debt, which leads to debt. You borrow from one institution to pay another, et cetera. And so just, you know, pure fiscal irresponsibility, right, of folks that treated this three-year period as freed up cash and took on additional debt. I think another factor at play here may be that it's hard for some Americans to change lifestyles when they're accustomed to a certain standard, uh, even at the expense of taking on more debt. What do you think? You're absolutely right. And what I always tell people is that responsible personal finance is a journey. It's difficult to flip your lifestyle like a switch like that. It is somewhat of a psychological journey. You have to really engage in some honest introspection and understand why you make some of the decisions you make in order to turn the page and go in a different direction. Yeah, and just one more point I would like to add. It's it's not about how much money you make. It's it's about being financially responsible. You can make six figures and you can still feel like you're not getting ahead in life. But thank you so much today, Derek. It's always Absolutely. great to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Don. Look forward to our next chat. A new report by a Catholic grassroots pro-life organization shows executives working for Planned Parenthood are among the highest paid in the U.S. not-for-profit sector. The report by the American Life League's Stop International says CEOs at Planned Parenthood are among the top 2% of U.S. wage earners. Their average salary rose from over $235,000 in 2015 to over $315,000 in 2020, marking a one-third increase over five years. The report said based on the latest data from 2021, the highest salary for a Planned Parenthood CEO was over $615,000. All 53 CEOs made over $100,000 a year, and six of them took home over half a million dollars. The report also noted that of all 53 Planned Parenthood affiliate CEOs, only four were black and three were Hispanic. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Still to come, nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Michigan, arriving in South Korea a day after the North resumed its missile tests. And we'll be hearing from experts on how to keep artificial intelligence ethical right after this break. Good to have you back. We're taking you to the Pacific now. The U.S. submarine, nuclear-powered submarine, has arrived in South Korea today, a day after North Korea fired two short-range missiles yesterday off its east coast. 
South Korean officials said the USS Michigan is the first of its kind to arrive in the country in six years. It's one of the biggest submarines in the world and can carry 150 Tomahawk missiles with a range of about 1,600 miles. Its arrival is part of a recent agreement between Washington and Seoul on enhancing regular visibility of U.S. strategic assets to the Korean Peninsula in response to North Korea's advancing nuclear program. The South Korean and U.S. militaries have been expanding their exercises since last year. Greek police have arrested nine Egyptian nationals in connection with a deadly migrant shipwreck off the country's coast. The suspects were seen being escorted last night from Coast Guard headquarters in a city near where the ship sank. The death toll now stands at 78, but that number is expected to rise as hundreds are still missing. Reports suggest up to 750 people were packed on the fishing boat when it capsized and sank Wednesday morning in deep waters some 50 miles from shore. Local media reported the ship departed from Egypt and stopped at a Libyan port before setting off for Italy. Officials said the people on the ship repeatedly rejected assistance from Greece's Coast Guard, making a rescue operation impossible. A Swiss cyclist died today, one day after crashing and falling down a ravine during a descent at the Tour de Suisse. Gino Meda crashed with American cyclist Magnus Sheffield on a fast downhill road in southeastern Switzerland. Medical staff found him motionless in the water. They performed CPR before he was airlifted to the hospital. 26-year-old Meda was one of Switzerland's best young riders. The Tour de Suisse is a preparation race ahead of next month's Tour de France. The route for yesterday's stage was later criticized by world champion Remco Evenepoel. He said, it wasn't a good decision to let us finish down this dangerous descent. Sheffield sustained a concussion and bruises and was treated at a local hospital. Elsewhere in Switzerland, people are avoiding tragedy. A mountain collapsed near a village in eastern Switzerland. But luckily, the small town was evacuated weeks before the landslide. This video shows a large mass of rock tumbling down the mountain near Breens. Swiss media say the landslide didn't bury the nearby town, but cut off the road leading to it. Last month, all 84 residents there were ordered to abandon their homes and leave. Authorities told them that 2.6 million cubic yards of rock will soon break loose and bury the homes. Another major rock slide is likely in the coming days. An official told UK lawmakers that the former prime minister's residence and offices were an oasis of normality where COVID-19 rules went ignored. Their comments are part of the parliament's final report on the so-called Partygate scandal. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson repeatedly told the lower house that lockdown rules had been followed at all times at Downing Street. But in written evidence to a lawmaker's Downing Street official said wine time Fridays and birthday parties continued while the rest of the country faced harsh restrictions on socializing. The official also said security urged staff to follow guidance when they left the building, watch out for cameras outside and be mindful of potential scrutiny. A committee said Johnson misled Parliament over lockdown breaching parties. Lawmakers will vote on the committee's report on Monday. Downing Street hasn't said if Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, the finance minister under Johnson, will attend the vote. As concerns over the rapid advancement of artificial intelligence grow, the UK recently announced it will host the first global summit on AI safety. This week, NTD's Jane Worrell was at an AI summit in London and asked experts their views on artificial intelligence and ethics.
Can artificial intelligence be ethical? While AI has been connected to doomsday scenarios, some experts say it's important to focus on harms that are happening today so the technology can be used for good. I have maybe overly optimistic belief in the power of people to do good things, but I'm really confident that, you know, we will figure out ways to get around these things. We should be ploughing our energy into fixing things that are here and now, like algorithmic bias, like systems that aren't very transparent for end users. All the technologies, even for computers, uh, it has evolved in a long way. Even mobile phones has evolved in a long way. So it is going to evolve. We have to adopt it and, and uh, go along with it so that it evolves and develops into something positive. Depending on its use, one way for AI to be ethical could be to make sure to involve a human, while also checking that the human isn't being biased. Keeping humans in the loop where it's possible and necessary where the risks are too grave otherwise is one way uh, to prevent some of these risks down the line. The European Union is pushing through regulation, the AI Act, that aims to reduce the risks of AI, such as deep fakes and mass surveillance. The EU Act is preserving human values, so it's only going to be, according to me, beneficial um, that companies are restricted by the EU Act because it's going to push the innovation towards the right places. Many policymakers will be looking at how companies adopt the EU rules in the hope the technology can be pushed in a positive direction. Jane Werrell, NTD News, London. In Sweden, another painting became the target of vandalism by climate activists. This time, two women of the climate group Restore Wetlands threw red paint over a Monet painting before gluing their hands to the artwork. The vandalized painting is called The Artist's Garden at Giverny, which Monet painted in the 1900. The group claimed the actions served to pressure the Swedish government to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by banning peat mining. The incident is the latest in a series of vandalisms. Last year, the British group Just Stop Oil made headlines after throwing tomato soup at Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers in London's National Gallery. The same group also glued themselves to the frame of an early copy of Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper at London's Royal Academy of Arts. They did the same to John Constable's The Haywain, also in the National Gallery. Luckily, there was no damage to the painting, which was encased in glass. It was on loan at the gallery from the Orsay Museum in Paris. The vandals were arrested following the incident. And just ahead, Ukrainian teenagers in Warsaw prepare for their final Ukrainian school exams. Many younger students attend Polish schools while trying to keep up with Ukrainian curriculum as well. The Hungarian police force has taken in a special dog. He's an army dog that was injured in Ukraine. Now he's living a new life, so stay tuned for that story in just a moment. Welcome back. Russian forces have destroyed or damaged thousands of schools in Ukraine, but it's also disrupting the education of Ukrainian children far beyond the war zone. And today's Andrew Thomas has more on wartime learning. Ukrainian teenagers in Warsaw are preparing for their final Ukrainian state school exams. 
Poland has taken in about 1.5 million Ukrainian refugees, the most of any country. Many plan to go home someday. 16-year-old Polina Plokenko is taking online classes with her school on the front lines in Kherson. Bombs often send her teachers fleeing into shelters. Sometimes we don't have uh, lessons because uh, towns where teachers are bombed and uh, sometimes teachers should go to the bomb uh, shelters uh, yeah, or they have problems with internet. The war has also inflicted psychological trauma on children. The ongoing conflict makes it difficult for students to focus on their studies. A deficit of education, in my opinion, has started since the coronavirus, when we were under quarantine. Surely, online education at that time didn't cover everything that offline education had to offer. Of course, war had a great influence. It took away children's ability to study. Nine-year-old Milana Minenko doesn't play the piano anymore. Russian forces destroyed her home with a missile on the second day of the war. The fourth grader and her parents found refuge in Poland. At first, when I arrived, it was very difficult for me. But then in the third grade, Mrs. Anna invited me to a camp. And in the camp, everyone was Polish. There were no Ukrainians, and I had no choice but to learn Polish. 17-year-old Ola Andrieva took Ukraine's final exam this month. The teenage rite of passage felt surreal. I don't even feel that it's my graduation, and I can't feel it because we don't have a graduation ceremony. And I don't even understand that it's not an ordinary day, that today is exams. Everything is somehow unclear. I don't feel it. Ukrainian officials say this generation will need to rebuild the nation after the war. Education is a priority they've described since the conflict's early months. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. We have the story of an army dog injured during the war in Ukraine who is getting another chance at service in the Hungarian police force. His new trainers say they think he can be a great help. Here's more. Rambo was hit by shrapnel during a rocket blast in Ukraine that also injured many soldiers. Emergency surgery saved his life. This is where he was hit by the shrapnel. This is where you can see the signs of the surgery. You can see how much is missing up here. The whole ear and his teeth, one or two above and also a couple of below. The force had never received a dog injured in a war, only injured police dogs. So it was a new experience for everyone involved. When I first saw him, my first feeling was pity. It was a very unfortunate thing that happened to him. And then I thought, it was a miracle that he survived. When we first went to visit the dog, I saw another miracle. How open he was to people, despite the injuries and trauma he had suffered. Rambo spent eight months at the shelter in Hungary, where his jaw was reconstructed, his right ear amputated, and several teeth removed. It is noticeable during the training sessions that he may have some mental injuries that we need to work on, and it is possible that we will encounter more during further training. Months after Rambo's trauma on the front lines, he now has new duties. They include setting an example for young people. 
Unfortunately, it happens that children mock each other because they wear glasses, because they have braces, because their ears look funny, or whatever, because they're different. With Rambo, we might be able to sensitize these children a little and show them that, yes, he is injured, he is different, but he can do the same things as other dogs. The force often visits schools to show that dogs and people can achieve great things despite their disabilities. And Father's Day is coming up. We'll hear from Americans around the country who tell a special story about their dads after the break. Great to have you back. The annual celebration of fatherhood is this weekend. As Father's Day approaches, NTD asks people around the U.S. to tell a story about their dad. Let's take a look. Fatherhood's super important. This year is going to be different for me. My dad just passed uh, a month and a half ago from cancer. So it's a bittersweet um, Father's Day just because he's not around, but I also know that he's not in pain anymore. He always would make sure that we had Pop-Tarts in the car uh, when he was driving us to school. My mom didn't typically let us have those, so he had Pop-Tarts in the car for us and we would eat them for breakfast on the way to school. Even though he wasn't around as much, he still made it to you know a lot of my stuff, like swim meets or any kind of extra events that I had as much as he could. Um, so I was just appreciative, even though, again, he was, I knew he was working hard to give us a, a better life. My sisters and I, we would just usually cook breakfast for him and bring it up. It uh, wasn't particularly funny, but he really loved it. And, and of course, we usually burnt it or, you know. <laughs> but just the fact his three little girls coming in with breakfast was a special time. Particular story is just him protecting me and my sister. And uh, we were bike riding one day, and sure enough, a couple dogs came to attack. And he basically got off his bike, grabbed his bike, and used that as a weapon or force field to protect us. Um. For over 50 years of my life, I saw him as the leader of our family. But he was a, um, he had a servant heart. He led by serving and had a quietness about him, um, but wisdom, lots of wisdom. and gained so much from that and hopefully have passed it on down through the next generation. Yes. Anywhere we went, he would always talk about the animals and nature and the world. And I think that that helped me process um, how to be in the world as a kid without needing to be entertained all the time by external distractions and whatnot. So I do my best to take my kids out into the natural world and just let them be, you know. You may have heard of video platform Ganjing World. It's hosting its first Father's Day photo awards. The winner will receive a grand prize of $1,000. Participants may upload an unlimited number of photo entries until the end of June. It could be their best dad moment, father and me photos, or photography to show their love. The name Ganjing World comes from Chinese, meaning clean world. The information portal was founded by Chinese dissidents who fled communist China. It is a new form of clean social media with the goal of creating a digital town square that is family friendly. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.